Welcome to Module 18 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. We are examining what are known as substantive errors, that is, judicial review on substantive grounds. Recall our focus here is on the what of the decision. When can that what be challenged in the course of our four-step approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power? In the last module, we explored how concerns initially about privative clauses and then about relative expertise and then generally about determining the intent of the legislature greatly complicated judicial review on substantive grounds by embedding concerns about deference into the judicial review process. This preoccupation with deference was expressed through what is known as the standard of review. Put simply, the question becomes under the standard of review, how bad must the substantive error be before the court will intervene? I suggested that any allegation that a delegate made a substantive error requires you to resolve two primordial questions. First, when will the court show deference? And second, what does deference mean in practice? And as we traced in our last module, the case law of the Supreme Court has offered different answers to these questions over the course of the last 50 years or so. And we focused, in terms of the standard review test, in our mini-history on the evolution of the standard of review approach from 1988 forward. The first examination was of the pragmatic and functional test, a contextual test whose four prongs were supposed to determine the intent of the legislature on whether deference was owed. We noted that with time, it constituted an uncertainty engine, not a tool for clearly anticipating the proper standard of review. We looked at the reset in Dunsmere in 2008 with its apparent focus on default standards of review tied to the nature of the substantive error before the court. And Dunsmere was then eroded by lingering debate and uncertainty over whether there was still a contextual test, and if there was, how did it work? Meanwhile, after Dunsmere, we knew that the standard of review test resulted in one or other of two possible standards of review, correctness or reasonableness. But we did not have abundant guidance on what reasonableness meant in practice. A definition was offered, but little precision was added beyond it. Finally, in 2019, the Supreme Court decided to pull the plug, and it pulled the plug in a way that constituted a clear break with the past. That past still has echoes in Vavilov, but Vavilov repackages the standard of review test, answering that first primordial question, when will the court show deference? And then articulates in much more detail than ever before exactly what reasonableness is. That is, the Supreme Court turns its attention to that second key primordial question, what does deference mean in practice? Now, we are getting into important material in this module, so I have intentionally shortened my modules on Vavilov to allow you to focus on individual aspects of this decision. In this module, we will focus on what Vavilov does to the standard of review test. Then, in the next module, we will examine how Vavilov approaches the concept and application of reasonableness. 
I will include also a module on the reception and application of Avalov. And then after that, we have a few leftovers before we can complete our discussion of the modern approach to substantive grounds. Now, one other piece of throat clearing before we get underway. Let me just be clear about what I am trying to do in these next modules. These modules are not intended as a meditation on the theoretical or normative debate on substantive grounds in administrative law. I confess, standard of review issues do not interest me. Indeed, as you may have inferred from discussions to this point, I find the endless struggle to find the perfect standard of review tedious, an endless expenditure of judicial energy with little appreciable gain. Because of this rather pedestrian worldview, my modules are intended as doctrinal overviews, establishing a base understanding of the law as it is, not as someone or other might wish it to be. So my focus here is on the majority decision in Vavilov, and my task is to extract as much certainty from it as possible. Perhaps false certainty? Time will tell. So turning then to Vavilov and the question of standard of review. A good portion of Avalov is, in fact, a meditation on what has gone wrong on the standard of review question in the past. But our launching point is with a clear presumption. The clear presumption the court now imposes that the standard of review on substantive review is reasonableness. Now, as a footnote, the court does not address procedural fairness other than to continue to treat it as a separate issue above and apart from substantive review. And so our focus in Vavilov is on standard review in relation to substantive review. Nothing has changed in Vavilov that relates to our discussions of procedural fairness from past modules. The presumption of reasonableness is, however, in the Vavilov formula, rebuttable in two broad circumstances. First, where the legislature prescribes a different standard of review. And that happens in two ways. First, Either the legislature specifies a different standard of review in a statute, or second, the legislature creates a statutory right of appeal from the delegate to a court. And repeat that, a statutory right of appeal from a delegate to a court. And so we're talking about a specific species of statutory right of appeal. There are statutory rights of appeal that go from one delegate to another, but here in relation to our conversation about standards of review, we're concerned about the existence of a statutory right of appeal from a delegate to a court. And so in either of those circumstances, the standard of review approach is different than it would be if one were to proceed simply with the rest of the Vavilov test. So Vavilov creates an off-ramp from its regular standard review analysis in these two situations. The first one, that reference to legislatures creating a different standard of review in a statute, is obvious. In a system based on parliamentary sovereignty or supremacy, parliament or the provincial legislature, as the case may be, is free to reduce the standard of review from reasonableness to correctness. It's within their remit. The second exemption, the reference to a statutory right of appeal from a delegate to a court, is also obvious. If the legislature codifies an appeal route from the delegate to the court, it is reasonable to assume that that legislature expects the court to more readily peer over the shoulder of the delegate and probe their decision perhaps more rigorously than would otherwise be the case. Now, that might seem obvious, but it's not the way it worked prior to Vavilov. Prior to Vavilov, the presumption of reasonableness applied as much to statutory appeals to court 
as it did to judicial review. And so here the Supreme Court is reversing its past precedent. And in fact, it spent a fair amount of time in the Vavilov case justifying this reversal of precedent, much to the irritation of the minority opinion in this case. But bottom line, in the result, the Supreme Court is in fact creating a different expectation for statutory appeals to the courts. And so we're going to have to discuss what the rules will be where there is a statutory appeal to the courts. We'll need to address this issue in one of our modules on leftovers in substantive review. Okay, so moving on from the first exemption that rebuts the presumption of reasonableness, there's now the second circumstance in which that presumption is rebutted. The Supreme Court says where the rule of law requires that the standard of correctness be applied. That's the second exemption. Now, that sounds like a very open-ended exception, but the Supreme Court ratchets it, it shut tightly by invoking variations on the exceptions that date back from that Dunsmuir decision. And there are three of those. First, general questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole. Now, note general questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole varies from the Dunsmuir formulation of the standard, which referred to those questions being outside the specialized expertise of the delegate. In the Vavilov formulation, expertise is no longer relevant in the standard of review analysis. It makes a cameo when it comes to the application of reasonableness, but it is no longer relevant in relation to deciding what the standard of review should be. Now, the Supreme Court provides some guidance on what it intends by this reference to general questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole. It says that the key underlying rationale for this category of questions is the reality that certain general questions of law require uniform and consistent answers as a result of their impact on the administration of justice as a whole. And one example of this would be, well, the scope of solicitor-client privilege. Now, the court goes on and also says, we would stress that the mere fact that a dispute is of wider public concern is not sufficient for a question to fall into this category, nor is the fact that the question, when framed in a general or abstract sense, touches on an important issue. And so the Supreme Court is not encouraging people to overreach and invoke this central importance doctrine in circumstances where they think that the issue raised by the decision is just really, really important. No, rather, this is more of a structural preoccupation with some question that really does go to a baseline concern in the operation of the legal system. Okay, so next category, questions relating to the jurisdictional boundaries between two or more administrative bodies. Well, this one again has an echo from Dunsmuir, albeit narrower than that concept of true questions of jurisdiction that Dunsmuir was talking about. Rather, here, what the Supreme Court is concerned about is some kind of delimitation between two bodies, and unless you decide where that delimitation point is, definitively, there's a risk that these two bodies may have overlapping jurisdiction. And so the rule of law, it says, cannot tolerate conflicting orders and proceedings where the result is a true operational conflict between two administrative bodies pulling a party in two different and incompatible directions. So this too is a circumstance where the rule of law dictates that the standard of review should be correctness. But beyond this, beyond this overlapping or jurisdictional boundaries between two or more administrative bodies, this concept of jurisdiction as a standard of review issue, that is dead in Canadian administrative law. Next and last in terms of our categories, again, an echo from Dunsmuir, constitutional questions. Here's what the Supreme Court says. 
questions regarding the division of powers between parliament and the provinces, the relationship between the legislature and the other branches of the state, the scope of Aboriginal and treaty rights under Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982, and other constitutional matters require a final and determinate answer from the courts. Therefore, the standard of correctness must continue to be applied in reviewing such questions. But, footnote, Vavilov maintains what in the prior module we called the Dory exception. And we'll need to talk about the Dory exception when we talk about residual issues in our leftovers module. Here's what the Supreme Court says. It is important to draw a distinction between cases in which it is alleged that the effect of the administrative decision being reviewed is to unjustifiably limit rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as was the case in Dore, and those in which the issue on review is whether a provision of the decision-maker's enabling statute violates the Charter. Our jurisprudence holds that an administrative decision-maker's interpretation of this latter issue, that is, the construal of a statute to decide whether it complies with the Charter, shall be reviewed for correctness, and that jurisprudence is not displaced by these reasons. And so put another way, as I put it in the last module, where at issue is whether a given provision in a statute complies with the Constitution, there you're going to apply correctness. But if at issue, in the course of making a decision and applying discretion one way or another, a delegate is to contemplate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that exercise of discretion is to be reviewed on a reasonable standard, even if it engages a Charter interest. So that's it. That's the standard of review analysis. Reasonableness, except for these two categories, one where the legislature signals another standard of review, and it can do so in two ways, either by emphatically prescribing correctness as a standard of review or by incorporating a statutory right of appeal to a court itself, in which case, if it does so, the standard of review analysis will be governed by other considerations relating to appellate review. We'll have to get to that. And second, the other circumstance in which the presumption of reasonableness is rebutted where the rule of law requires and the rule of law requires in three circumstances. First, where the matter is of central importance to the Canadian legal system. Second, questions relating to the jurisdictional boundaries between two or more administrative bodies. And third, constitutional questions, or at least those constitutional questions which require the application of the Constitution to decide whether a given statutory provision is constitutional or not. However, if at issue is the exercise of discretion, and in the exercise of the discretion, you expect the delegate to contemplate a charter interest, there, according to the Dory exception, you will continue to apply reasonableness. Now, clearly, there are some complexities in the application of this Vavilov approach. But the bottom line is that contextual approach, the approach that we described beginning with Bebo in 1988 and the pragmatic and functional approach, and then its complexities leading to the reset in Dunsmuir, a reset that didn't stick quite as well as many of us hoped and led to new complexities and uncertainty about whether there was some contextual analysis living somewhere in the attic of standard review jurisprudence. That is gone. The Supreme Court has firmly closed the door to that contextual approach Moreover, the Supreme Court has suggested that it will be reluctant in the future to find new bases of departing from the default of reasonableness to a correctness standard of review. In the next module, we need to move on to the next question of what does reasonableness mean in practice? And on this issue, Vavilov charts a new path. This ends module 
18.